And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. What a morning. Welcome, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being here. I know we're a little bit late. Had a little technical issues here. Gremlins in the station. I'm not exactly sure what uh, what caused the issue, but we are here. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. The comments and chat are open if you are here with us live. Uh, if you're not live, you can still leave us a comment. Anytime you can uh, send us an email, live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. We do encourage you also to sign up for our newsletter. And if you like to have us on the go as a podcast, we're on iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Double Twist, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. All right, now we got all that out of the way. Uh, Speaking of which, I've been looking at some of the statistics for the podcast. We have people listening in Germany and Thailand and South Africa, UK, Ireland. Welcome. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. On Friday, we're going to have a new Tardis sauce. I think they're going to be talking about Doctor Who toys on Friday. All right, let's get into it now because we are talking Star Trek today with author Mark Cushman. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, Mark. So welcome and thanks for joining us today. Are you there, Mark? I'm doing good. Oh. It's actually sunny and warm up here. <laughs> now you're in. You're after, in after, after snow a few days ago, so it's doing pretty good, Jason. Are you in, you're in California today, right? Yeah, I'm up on a mountaintop, so we get snow up here. But uh, <laughs> today the sun decided to come out and decent temperatures. All right, Mark is a screenwriter. He's worked on uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction, Diagnosis, Murder, the web series Star Trek Continues. And uh, what we're talking about today is his documentary series of books uh, called These Are the Voyages. Right now he's up to six volumes detailing the inner workings and the behind the scenes. What would you call them? Machinations? Shenanigans? Drama? I mean, how would you, how would you characterize the events portrayed in in your in your work here, Mark? Well, I consider these books to be a biography of a TV series, and that's the first three, uh, one book for each season of Star Trek. And then I carried on with uh, Star Trek in the 1970s, the animated series, the aborted Phase 2 series, and finally Star Trek, the motion picture. And the reason I call them a biography is I treat the show as if it's flesh and blood. And uh, I include, uh, this was endorsed by Gene Roddenberry and Roddenberry Enterprises, and uh, I had a lot of other people on board, like Bob Justman, who was a co-producer of the original Star Trek and the first season of Next Generation, and Dorothy Fontana and John D.F. Black, who was a producer on the original Star Trek, and they were all writers, of course. And I interviewed all the cast members and directors and crew people, and Gene gave me access to thousands of memos from the original series, from the motion picture, from uh, the animated series, on and on. 
So I incorporate all this stuff into the books, along with the, the Nielsen ratings for every episode, uh, interviews, all that stuff, and uh, and treat it just like if you were reading a biography on uh, on Steven Spielberg, and you got his quotes, and you got his memos, and you got uh, all the uh, production dates and everything else, all the things they went through, and so it takes you through the entire series as it was created, developed, and each episode that was made with all of the fights with NBC and on and on. So it's a biography. Now, you mentioned the fights with NBC, and as as I go through these three books uh, that are covering the period between when Star Trek was canceled all the way up through the, the production of the motion picture, one of my big takeaways with regard to Paramount uh, and I've said this in a couple of a uh, couple of shows before. It really does feel to me like the executives at Paramount Pictures never have quite understood what Star Trek is as as an intellectual. Pro- I mean, they see it as an intellectual property to be exploited, but in terms of what kind of show it is, what kind of stories are being told. It really doesn't seem like Paramount understands what they have their hands on. Am I am I reading that wrong? No, that's exactly right. Uh, they they never did, <clears throat> and I, I doubt if they do even to this day, uh, because the uh, the executives of the studio aren't necessarily Star Trek fans. Show uh, they uh, I interviewed one of the executives. For, uh, the first one, and uh, they they saw it as a, uh, a property, an intellectual property, as you said, but they didn't understand what it was about Star Trek that the fans they didn't get in those terms. Of course, when you were doing the original series back then, uh, you know Paramount didn't understand it either at NBC, and so Gene Roddenberry were creating what they did and they understood what made it special uh, but uh, the people they were working for never did and I don't think they ever will what in all of the in all of the research that you've done and you mentioned there was thousands of memos there's all these different interviews that you did with cast and crew what was the biggest surprise for you in terms of uh, either a preconceived notion or an expectation going in or uh, uh, urban legends all of the all of the stories and the mythology and the and the different tales that are told around Star Trek all these years was there anything in your research that just reached out and grabbed you and took you completely flat-footed my God, I wouldn't know where to begin. Uh, there was so much folklore out there about Star Trek on the internet and in articles and other books. Uh, because, see, n- none of these people ever had access to the materials, the actual files, uh, with the memos and all the correspondences between uh, Roddenberry and the studio, the network, uh, and so forth. And so there was just a lot of misinformation out there. It's being corrected. Uh, these books have been out for a few years now. Um uh, we just released the last couple books uh, this last year. The last one came out in September of 2020. But the uh, first one that uh, tackled the first season of the original show uh, came out in uh, late 2013. 
So gradually, a lot of the information on the uh, Internet is being corrected, uh, which I'm happy to see. And, uh, and so there's less folklore now than there used to be. But to your question, Jason, um, the first thing that struck me was the ratings. You know, we were always told that Star Trek was a failure on NBC, which isn't true. Uh, the first season of the original series, 1966 and 67, uh, it was NBC's top-rated Thursday night show. And uh, it quite often won its time slot against tough competition. And uh, it pulled in uh, anywhere from a 30 share to uh, the very first episode pulled in a 47% audience share, meaning 47% of the TVs in America were tuned into Star Trek. And, uh, and it quite often would, uh, would win its time slot, even in the third season, when they put it in the death slot, Fridays at 10 p.m., right. uh, the first episode of that year, Spock's Brain, the much maligned Spock's Brain, won its time period. It was first. It beat the two-hour premiere of Hawaii Five-O, a series that ran for 12 years. It beat uh, Judd for the Defense on ABC, which had just won an Emmy as Best Dramatic Series on television. And so they, the ratings were nowhere near uh, as bad as, as we were told, and quite often they were quite good. Uh, towards the very end of the run, with all the time slot changes, uh, the budget cuts and being in the death slot, the ratings did come down. But uh, the first year was solid. The second year, when they moved it to Friday nights, it was their top-rated Friday night show. And you don't cancel your top-rated. So I found out uh, through going through these memos and talking to Gene and the others that uh, the real conflict with the network was uh, the content, uh, the subject matters of a lot of these episodes, which were taboo on primetime entertainment TV back in the 1960s. So that was one thing. And there were many, many others uh, that, that really surprised me, things I'd never known uh, that I was able to bring out with all this research. Does Fred Freiberger get a bad rap uh, with, the, with the, the decline of the third season? Is that, is that another one of those urban, urban myths that we can put to bed? Yeah. Is he... Is he is he the one who killed Star Trek like they always talk about, or was there was there other factors with that? Yeah, he definitely got a bad rap. I mean, Fred Freiberger was a very talented writer and producer and uh, had many successes. Uh, he was uh, the guy that got Wild Wild West up on its feet, which was a very unique show. It was part science fiction, part Western, part espionage, uh, James Bond in the, in the West. And uh, that show was having trouble finding itself uh, in its first year, and they brought in Fred, and he put it up, and he got it going, and that was a very successful series. Uh, he produced several others. People say he killed Space 1999. That's not true. Uh, Space 1999 was going to get canceled at the end of its first season until they were able to get Fred to come over and produce the second season, and they renewed it based on that alone. So, uh, you know, he did very well. As far as Star Trek is concerned, uh, it, this was the third season. Uh, Paramount had taken over at, by this point from Desilu. They had cut the budget severely to where Bob Justman in one of his memos said, we're trying to do half a science fiction movie a week uh, on, on the budget of a radio show. 
That's mm. what it felt like to him. Yeah. It wasn't really that bad. It was still one of the most expensive series on television, but they weren't getting anywhere near the money that they were getting for the first season, the second season, but what they needed to do that kind of a series. So Fred had to find a way to keep the show on budget, and he had to find a way to keep NBC happy, which Gene Roddenberry had never done. They were butting heads constantly, which is why NBC wanted to cancel the show. So Fred uh, accomplished this. He kept the network happy. He kept it on budget. Uh, but that meant uh, taking a lot of good stuff out of the scripts. Uh, they didn't have as many scenes because each scene requires a lighting setup, and that takes time. So you find the pacing of the third season is much slower than in the first two uh, for that reason alone. Uh, but other than that, there's a lot of excellent episodes in the third season. I, you know, I, I, I felt it when I was watching the show. I felt, well, this isn't quite as good as it was last year. Mm -hmm. But really, if you look at a lot of those episodes, like a lot of Troyes, uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, All Our Yesterdays, um, The Enterprise Incident, The Paradise Syndrome, uh, th these are pretty good episodes. And I think on par with a lot of the stuff that was being done in the first and second season. I find it interesting you mentioned Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is one of the better episodes. There are a lot of a lot of folks who look at that one as being rather clunky with its message uh, and a little bit over the top. And especially you look at nowadays the, the way the culture is with the entertainment media and the messaging and the cancel culture and all this other stuff. Uh, it is, is, is that something that you ran across in any of the documents, the, the any discussions about how much they could address current events of the time or, or they yeah. wanted to but couldn't? How much of that was actually being discussed behind the scenes? Quite a bit. Uh, and you can see a lot of that in the books because these memos are in there. Um, you know, and what I try to do with the books is take you back in time. So you're witnessing the making of Star Trek. You're mm -hmm. not just hearing about it uh, or looking back. You're actually, you go back and you're witnessing it being built around you. And uh, you're seeing the memos back and forth on every script, every episode, including a lot of episodes that didn't get made because the network just refused to air them. And uh, uh, so you weren't supposed to talk about Vietnam, but Star Trek did it with a second season episode called A Private Little War. Uh, you weren't supposed to talk about racism, which they certainly did with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. You weren't supposed to talk about overpopulation, which they did with or birth control, which they did with a third season episode called The Mark of Gideon. Uh, and you weren't supposed to see Captain Kirk trying to rape his yeoman, which you saw in the first season in an episode called the enemy within and the ratings for that episode by the way it was winning its time slot in the first half hour until captain kirk tries to rape yeoman rand and at that point it dropped to number three in the ratings because people were jumping to their tvs to turn the channel very few people had remote controls back then you had sure. to actually go up and turn the knob <laughs> i remember and, those uh, days because they had kids in the room, and here, here's William Shatner on top of Grace Lee Whitney, and she has to scratch his face to get him off of her. Yeah. And this is this is the protagonist of the series, the leading man. Uh, and NBC sent Roddenberry a memo saying, don't you ever do anything like this again on this show. We will not rerun this episode, and, and so forth. So there were a lot of fights between him and the network. 
But what happened with Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is, uh, is Roddenberry wanted to do an episode on racism in the first season. And he came up with a story and gave it to Barry Trivers, who had written the episode The Conscience of the King, and was called uh, uh, A Portrait, Portrait in Black and White. And the premise of the uh, story was that the um, Kirk and landing party beamed down to a planet which is a parallel Earth. We saw them do that type of thing a few times in the show. Right. And uh, uh, But this one is circa right before the Civil War. And uh, it'd be like going down to the South, uh, to North Carolina or Alabama, uh, just a few years before the Civil War broke out. Except on this planet, blacks are the ruling race and whites are the slaves. And the away team is uh, captured and they're put in shackles, except for one person, Yuhara. And she's the one who has to save them. Well, NBC refused to air it. And uh, they tried again. They rewrote it for the second season, and NBC still refused to air it. So in the third year, they did Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, where a race of people are black on one side of their face and white on the other side. But they're prejudiced against one another because, well, I'm black on the right side. You're white on the right side. You're different. And I see where people can look at it as being over the top and, as you said, a bit clunky. But it was 1968. And race riots were going on across the country because Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Cities were in flame. And so, as always with Star Trek, the original series, they they were very topical, and they were doing uh, themes and stories that nobody else was touching, because as science fiction, they could get away with it, even though the network was trying to block a lot of these things. So if you look at it in that context, it's really a historical episode, and a very daring episode. And, and I think it's brilliant in the fact that it is so simple. You know, I think that scene where Frank Gorshin uh, and, and Kirk are talking, and he says, you keep calling them those people. They're kind. They're just like you. And he says, Captain, are you blind? He's black on the right side. I'm white on the right side. You know, it, it showed the absurdity of racial prejudice right. in a way that you just can't imagine. You know, uh, and and that that's the fun of it, and that's why it was so profound and had such an impact. You mentioned Roddenberry having battles with the network, and there are there are points in these books, and we and we get into you know after after the cancellation and the back and forth and the debate on whether or not they wanted to bring Star Trek back or just leave it to, to be a, a, a moneymaker machine out of the syndication. And there was all of this uh, you know, debate on what it would even look like if it came back. And in the midst of it all, you have the fans uh, doing their fanzines and their merchandise and their, and their uh, conventions, and Roddenberry starts to play into that. Uh, I want to make it clear to everybody that's 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 watching and listening. This is not a a glossing over Roddenberry comes out smelling like a rose on this. He he had his share of responsibility, culpability. I mean, was there any kind of of mandate or understanding that you need to kind of tiptoe around what the fact that it seems like Roddenberry was his own worst enemy at times? He was. Um, I knew Gene. 
Um, I pitched the episode Sarek to him for Next Generation. Um, I, I first interviewed him in 1982 uh, and had a relationship with him for about uh, 10 years uh, where I would meet with him and interview him and pitch stories to him for, for Next Gen and, and so forth. Um, and very nice guy, uh, a wonderful producer to pitch to because he was a writer-producer. And, and you would pitch a story, like with, with uh, Sarak, I, I said, I wonder what happens to a Vulcan when he goes through senility. And Mark Leonard is still with us, and you wouldn't even have to dye his hair. It's now naturally turning gray. And uh, I'd like to do a story where he's on the ship. And, and Gene was intrigued by that, and he said, well, what do you think would happen to a Vulcan going through senility? And we, we just had a conversation about it, and that's where that episode got built from. And everybody I talked to, all the other writers said the same thing. He was just, there was never a more pleasurable experience for a writer than to pitch to Gene Roddenberry, because you just start brainstorming together, and it would just develop from there. But he, uh, but he, he wanted to be a modern-day Jonathan Swift. He wanted to uh, tell stories on TV that nobody else could tell. He had been through the censorship issues before as a TV writer and as a producer of a series called The Lieutenant with Gary Lockwood, which was right before Star Trek. And, uh, and so he thought Star Trek would be a safe way to tell these daring type stories. Uh, but it just caused a lot of problems. And then later on, when they did the movie, or were trying to do the movie throughout the uh, middle of the 1970s all the way through the end of the 70s, with all the different scripts that are being rejected and all the delays, uh, he, he was never willing to play it their way, to do it the way the studio wanted to do it. He, he wanted to do something important. And, uh, and he would risk his own reputation to do it. He would risk his own career to do it. And he certainly paid the price in many ways. And that's why they finally took Star Trek away from him and gave it to Herb, um, Hart Bennett. Uh, and Gene Roddenberry was only credited as a uh, executive consultant uh, from Rathicon forward uh, until he got to do Next Generation uh, because nobody wanted to work with him. Not that he was a bad person, but he was difficult in their eyes right. because they would say, do this. And Irwin Allen would say, okay, and he would go do whatever the network was telling him to do. And Gene Roddenberry wouldn't. He would fight them. And I know your audience enjoys science fiction, so I've also done books on a couple of Irwin Allen properties, Lost in Space and Voyage to the Sea, because those came out before Star Trek, and I wanted to see the development of science fiction on television. And Irwin would direct all of his own pilots. Uh, and, and so all those shows started great. And then they kind of got worse and worse and worse as they went along. Lost of Space became almost like a comedy. Yeah. Voyage to the Sea became Monster of the Week. Well, the reason why is that's what the networks wanted. CBS took, told Irwin Allen, we're getting too many letters from upset parents because the kids want to watch Lost of Space, but then they have nightmares. So you got to do something about this. You got to get rid of Dr. Smith. You got to get rid of the robot. They're too scary. And Irwin decided, no, no, I'll just make them less threatening. I'll make them more comical. And that's why that show changed. Uh, I interviewed Lou Hunter at uh, ABC, who was the uh, uh, manager of for the network of Voice Fantasy. He said every time we had a monster on, the ratings would go up. So we just kept telling Irwin, give us more monsters, more monsters, <laughs> and. You know, over over time, the show became too predictable, right, and less interesting. Well, see, Gene Roddenberry didn't play that game. You know, he said, "No, 
I'm going to make the show I want to make. And they said, well, then we're going to take it off the air. And they tried to take it off the air, and they got a million letters. And people were marching on NBC Rockefeller Plaza and NBC Burbank. And so they had to renew it, and then they put it in the death slot to try to kill it for good. So, you know, he was a different type producer than, say, Irwin Allen. And by the way, when NBC tried to cancel Star Trek at the end of his second season, despite the fact that it was their top-rated Friday night show, not great ratings, but, uh, but it was the best show they had on Friday nights. And uh, they tried to take it off, and they got all those letters and people marching on them, and they had to renew it. Uh, so they, but before they renewed it, they contacted Irwin Allen to see if he would come produce a series for them. Because he was doing well on ABC with Voyage and Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants. He was doing great on CBS with Boston Space. And they thought, well, let's get Irwin Allen over here and do a science fiction series, and we'll give it Star Trek's time slot. And But then they got all those letters, <laughs> and so they had to renew Star Trek. Well, and I'd heard at one point that, uh, and and I could I could be remembering this, inaccurately, but I want to say that I had read somewhere uh, that Lost in Space was developed after Roddenberry pitched Star Trek to CBS, and they turned it down, yes. and they went around, and they, tur- and, they, and they turned to Irwin Allen, and they said, give us a space show. Is that... Yeah, Gene, Gene told a fib. He told it to me, too. And, uh, y- you know, because he's a writer, and he would embellish things, and he would get up and do his, his talks in front of fans and so he would he would talk about how he came in and pitched um, uh, uh, Star Trek to CBS and they listened to the pitch and they asked him all kinds of questions about how he would do a show like this and so forth and at the end of the meeting they said well thank you very much but we have one of our own called Lost in Space and he was very upset about that because he said you picked my mind so you can make your show work and da 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 that wasn't true you know and i think the world of gene but that that was not a true statement uh when i did the research for the loss of space books and again i was given access to Irwin allen's private papers uh Irwin went in to cbs after gene roddenberry pitched star trek by about two weeks so he wasn't in there uh first cbs didn't already have loss of space when gene came in they wanted a science fiction series because Voice of the Sea was doing well on ABC. It had just been on for a year, but it was winning its time slot. So they, they brought in Gene Roddenberry. He pitched Star Trek. They said, thank you. We'll, we'll think about it. Two weeks later, they brought in Irwin Allen, and he pitched Lost in Space. But it wasn't called Lost in Space. It was called Space Family Robinson. And it was Swiss Family Robinson in Outer Space. And they liked that show. And then as they developed it and started writing the pilot, they changed the name to Lost in Space, and that was a good six months after Gene Roddenberry had been in to, to CBS. So, so Gene was there first. They didn't turn him down because they already had Lost in Space. They turned him down because they thought it would be too expensive to do Star Trek. Now, let me ask you this on on some of this because um, the, the you, as you say, Roddenberry fibbed, and there are some times where. Some of the stories that he tells are not quite accurate. How often do, yeah. did you run across that? Because we see in some of these, uh, 
when in some of these other uh, articles and 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 the the letters that he writes to other people that we see in these books, it really kind of skews a certain direction, and it doesn't necessarily paint an accurate picture of what actually was going on behind the scenes. Was that also? I mean, like I said, these books don't don't sugarcoat. Gene Roddenberry's reputation. I mean, we've got a few we've got a few questions in the live chat about his personal life, and you don't get into that too much. Uh, I mean, the divorce is mentioned in in the first book of this second set, and some of the some of the resulting financial aspects of that. But his his personal life, you know, the re, the the reputed alleged affairs and, and all that stuff. You don't get into any of that, which I think I is probably. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, but these are these are big books, and and so the main emphasis is on making the series. Right. Uh, but there were a few occasions where I did have to note it in the books because it was relevant. Uh, one of those cases, and this comes right to your question, another fib that he told <laughs> was he would tell convention audiences for decades that uh, the first pilot, the Cage, uh, he had a woman in second command of the Enterprise which was played by uh, his mistress, later his wife, Majel Barrett. And uh, he was still married at that point, but he was having an affair with Majel, and he cast her in the pilot. NBC was very unhappy about that. And there's some memos in the books about that, uh, that, oh, he's got his girlfriend in there, you know, right. uh, who he's, he's, he's sneaking around with, and we can't have that. He's, he's using our network to keep his mistress happy. Uh, so they were very unhappy about that. What Gene would tell the convention audiences was that NBC didn't like a, a woman being in second command of the Enterprise. That's not true at all. NBC had already uh, had put a couple shows on the air with women protagonists uh, just that very year. And they had the girl from Uncle in development, and there's a woman pro protagonist in an action series, uh, and so forth. So... Um, they didn't have a problem with the fact that the character was a woman. They had a problem with the fact that it was being played by the woman that he kept a, a motel room across the street from the studio for. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to be part of that. Right. Now, I'm hearing... And, and so that, that's why they said take her out and why she was... And then Spock got bumped up to second in command. So he didn't quite tell the truth there. But then most men don't when they're getting caught having an affair <laughs> right. now you're i'm hearing you say magel have has everybody been pronouncing it incorrectly all these years because i've always heard major barrett not not it's, magel. It's, it's, i'm sorry it is major it is okay. major okay. i say magel i say magel because that's how i thought her name was pronounced and uh, that's the way i said it for years and then uh, i finally met her and she corrected me and said Majel. Okay. But, you know, when you're when you're talking, you sometimes go back to the way you originally oh, said sure. it. Oh, sure. Well, because, you know, in, in everything, how how we always get these distorted stories, and a lot of times, you know, you'll get somebody who's got an, an a different name and you're not exactly sure how to pronounce it. One of the things that I do when I'm when I'm researching, if I get if I get somebody with an unusual name, uh, especially, especially the ethnic names. I want to make sure that I that I pronounce them correctly. So I'm always scouring, you know, the internet to see if I can find any other uh, any other interviews where you know somebody actually pronounces the name. And it, when when you said that, I thought, 
have we all have we all been getting it wrong all these years? Because that would just be consistent with getting everything else wrong about Star Trek all these years, yeah. wouldn't it? So, yeah, yeah. No, I um I I, I first met uh, um Majel um at Gene's house, but um uh, but that wasn't the time she corrected me because I guess I didn't I just said hi, it's wonderful to meet you, and I didn't say her name out loud. Uh, but then I I was a writer on a a movie that she was in called Teresa's Tattoo a few years later. And, uh, and I met her there again. And I said, I said, uh, Michelle, it's wonderful to see you again. And she's, well, actually it's Majel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to see you too. (laughs) So I, I sometimes slip, uh, when I pronounce her. Well, and I think, I think given, given all of the information that's been dumped into your brain, I think we can forgive the occasional slip on that because you have, I mean, you have access to so much that people don't have. I mean, in the past we've had, you know, we've got Stephen Whitfield's behind the scenes book. We've got David Gerald's book. Um, we've got Howard Asherman's, uh, book, Herbert's, uh, Herbert Solo did his, his behind the scenes, you know, making Star Trek. And uh-huh. you've got the the compendiums and the chronologies and all of that, but none of those really go into the depth of detail that you have yeah. in these. It, it, it's it's really it's kind of unprecedented access that you've been given. So how did you rate that kind of uh, that kind of access to all of this? Well, I was I was working for a company uh, called Akema Films in L.A. Uh, and they were doing, looking to do uh, specials for local TV on certain things, and they, they wanted to do one on Star Trek, and this was in 80, 81 or 82. Um, and uh, it was after the first movie came out, before the second one did. And, uh, and so I, I got to go to Paramount to interview Gene, and that was the first time I met him. Um, and I told him I loved the book, The Making of Star Trek, which I had read when I was in high school. And... Um, and it, it covered the creation of the show. Uh, Stephen Whitfield wrote that, and Gene was listed as a co-writer because he opened up his files and everything to Gene and and, and made modifications to the manuscript and so forth. Anyway, uh, I said I love that book, um, and it, it gives us a pretty good look at the making of the pilots. Uh, I just wonder if you kept all the materials for all the other episodes. And he said, oh, yeah, and there's like 45 boxes of this stuff. And uh, with all the different drafts of the scripts, the treatments, the memos, the budgets, you name it. Uh, and he gave me access to that stuff uh, to, to do this, uh, to do a book. And, um, and gave me interviews and then connected me with, uh, with Dorothy and Bob Justman and John D.F. Black and on and on and on. So it just started building over a series of many, many years. But that's the thing that really sets these books apart is the, is the memos. Because, you know, people's memories can fade. And uh, Joe Diagosta said to me when I interviewed him, he was the casting director on the original Star Trek and uh, and Irwin Allen shows too, by the way, right before that. So I interviewed him again for those books. But he he told me, uh, he started to share a story with me and then he kind of stopped and he said, you know, Mark, I, I don't know, I, I'm, t- I'm going to tell you something that I, I witnessed, but I, I just have to say, I don't. I'm not sure I actually witnessed it. Uh, it may be that somebody told me this, and now in my mind, I see it as if I was there. 
And that's the way it is with our memories when you're looking back 40 years or 50 years, yeah. you know, and I'm just old enough to where I can look back that far now. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so, you know, I would interview so many people for these books, and they would get the stories wrong. Uh, and uh, and I would have the right information because I had all the, the production schedule in front of me and, and the memos and everything else. I remember Nan- Nancy Kovac, who was in the episode of Private Little War, I was interviewing her, and she was saying, oh yeah, we shot that thing uh, in uh, in summer, and it was really hot out there. And I said, well, actually, you shot it in uh, in October. No, no, it was earlier than that. It was summer, and it was like, well, I got the production schedule right in front of me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and things like that. Because you know, you just don't remember things. But I have all the uh, the information, and and that's the thing that doesn't get distorted in time is the documents that were made right. when it was being being filmed. So that that's what allowed me to correct the uh, record on a lot of this stuff, and then we were able to uh, get all the Nielsen ratings from AC Nielsen. Um, uh, which nobody had ever done. For 50 years, everybody was saying the ratings were bad. Nobody ever bothered to go get any of the ratings. Now, they were listening to folklore. Was it, a, was it a fight to get those, or was it... Was yes. It, it was. Well, it, it, was, it wasn't a fight that they, they didn't want to give them up. It was a fight that they didn't want to bother looking for them. Ah. You know? And the first time I called over there and I said... Uh, I'm inter- we're interested in getting the ratings for the first Star Trek series. Oh, we don't keep stuff like that. We just keep a list of the top 25 shows for the year, uh, but we don't keep the actual ratings. And uh, Star Trek never made the top 25, but it, it would make the top half. It was in the upper half of the, the shows until the very end uh, when it came down. But uh, they said they didn't have it. I thought, well, that can't be right. And so I called them again a few months later and got the same answer. And a few months later, got the same answer. You know, you think maybe you'll get somebody different on the phone and they'll sure. be more cooperative. And then it finally dawned on me one day to try a different approach. And I talked to my publisher, uh, Robert Jacobs, and uh, and he said, you know, we'll pay for these. So I called again. And I, and I said, hi, I w- we would like to license the ratings for the original Star Trek series. Oh, let me transfer you to... <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and, and all the ratings were down in the basement, down in the bowels of A.C. Nielsen in New York. And they had them all for every episode. My and so we, we licensed uh, all the episodes, including quite a few of the reruns, just to see how it was doing in the summertime as well. And that, that doesn't just give you the number, the range number and the audience percentage, but it, it gives the numbers for the competition as well. So you get to see exactly how it was doing every single episode. That's why I was able to tell you that, like with Enemy Within, it was winning its time slot until the attempted rape, and then right down to number three. Right. Well, and, and the other thing that, that struck me is when you're, when you're going through the material on the Quester tapes, and you have all of the production memos and the and the and the behind the scenes documents and all of that. And there's a there's an interesting story in there where you actually were able to provide Mike Farrell with some closure after what, twenty, twenty yeah. some odd years? Yeah. Uh where where he, when he got cut from the show after the pilot you actually were able to to give him a little bit of a of a better understanding as to what exactly happened because he kind of got yeah. 
uh, just run out on a rail, he thought. But, you know, the whole thing kind of caught him sideways. I mean, it allowed him to go to MASH. So there's that. But what what was the story on that? How did all of that come about where you were able to to give him a little bit of a sense of of completion, I guess? Uh, you know, closure is a good, a good way for it. Cl- cl- completion, closure are the perfect words. I was able to do that, actually, in, in, in a book I did earlier on, on I Spy. I interviewed Bob Cope and Bill Cosby and multiple interviews with Bob Cope. Went to his house about seven times. And that show was a huge hit. And yet it was canceled after three seasons. And they always believed that the ratings had come down because that's what Sheldon Leonard, the producer, told them. And they, they were had already got their vaccines to go to Bangkok to start shooting the fourth season. They had scripts, everything else. And he called uh, Bob and he called Bill and he said, uh, uh, we've been canceled, so you won't be going. And they believed that. Uh, and then I was able to bring them the ratings and also memos from Sheldon Leonard to Mort Warner at NBC. And they found out the real reason that show got canceled was because uh, uh, Leonard was having a, a fight with Mort Warner and Leonard took it off the air. Uh, so, <laughs> and and both, J- both Bob and Bill Cosby were uh, I, I was so surprised they were depressed. For Bob, I went and saw Bob about a week later, um, and, uh, and he seemed really kind of down. I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, you know, I've been believing a lie for 40 years, and I've been telling that lie to people for 40 years. And he was kind of down. And, he's, and he said, Bill's feeling the same way. And then a week later, Bob Cope calls me, and, and he sounded chipper, and he was sounding like Kelly Robinson and, and everything. And I said, well, he sounds so much better. And he says, yeah, well, it took me a week to get here, but I, I realized we went out on top. <laughs> it was like that. Anyway, sorry for digressing. But, no, no, no. But I've done that with my books many times. Walter Koenig tells me this all the time. He says, now I know what was going on in the other rooms. You know, I, he only knew what was going on where he was. Yeah. And when Shatner would write his uh, his books and everything else, they, they knew what was happening on the set where they were standing, but they didn't know what was going on back in the writer's room and, and, and NBC, and now they've got all that information. So it's helped them. So Quester Tapes, now that's covered in uh, the fourth book, which is uh, uh, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volume 1. Sorry for the long title. I just thought it should be called These Are the Voyages 4. <laughs> but it's, it's not. It started a new three-book series. So um, Quester Tapes uh, was being done for NBC at Universal, and uh, and Nimoy was under contract at Universal at that time as a writer-director. I'm sorry, as an actor-director. And he was supposed to be in Quester Tapes, and Roddenberry developed the show for him. And the character is a bit Spock-like, you know, Quester. Okay. Uh, and then suddenly Nimoy's out, and they brought in Robert Foxworthy. And, and uh, Nimoy was very upset about that uh, because he thought Gene had betrayed him. But there's a memo in there from Gene to the network telling them he's going to quit the show because they wanted Nimoy taken out. They were afraid there would be too many comparisons between Spock and Quester. So even though it was developed for Nimoy and they wanted it for Nimoy originally, they changed their minds and they wanted this other actor. And uh, and Gene quit. And and Leonard never knew that, you know. And I I did that book right right after Leonard passed away. Or I would have called him and, and said, "Man, you got to see this memo that I just came out of the Roddenberry vault with." And 
and he didn't betray you. He, he quit the show. Uh, they brought him back later uh, as as a, a executive consultant, and they ended up giving him a credit as executive producer. But he was supposed to be the producer of the show, and he was the creator, but he quit because they took Leonard Nimoy out. Well, then, the same thing happens after they make the pilot, and Mike Farrell's in it as, as uh, the co-star, the human that deals with Quester, the machine. And, uh, and it did very well, and the reviews were great, and NBC decided to let's, let's take it to a series. And so they ordered 16 episodes, and Gene was developing scripts, and he had a bunch of scripts written now. And, they, and the network came back and said, you know, we want to take out the character, Mike Farrell's character. Uh, we think we just want it to be about Quester. And he said, no, but you need the other guy. <laughs> it makes Quester better to have a human to work with. And they said, no, no, we want to take him out. And so Jing quit again. And they brought in another producer and, and uh, so forth. Well, Mike Farrell never knew that. He never knew why he got sacked. He never knew that Gene Roddenberry went to battle for him and quit. And as a result of quitting, the show never got made. It never went on the air, even though they had ordered 16 episodes. And Mike Farrell never knew any of that. He just knew that he loved the part. He loved make, doing the pilot, which was a two-hour movie. Uh, and, uh, and then he was suddenly dropped, but he never understood why. And, and then he found out why. And, and he not only found that out, but he found out that because they dropped him, the show didn't get on the air. That's pretty good closure. Have there have there been times when it's gone the other way, where where somebody that you're interviewing maybe has an understanding that it went a certain way, and then they find out the truth of it, and it actually makes things worse? Has, has any of that happened with any of the people that you've talked with? No, um, no. It's always been the the opposite to where they felt better when the information came, because you know. And Walter Koenig told me this. Um, uh, he and I are friends, and so we talk all the time. And I interviewed him for the show, the books, of course. And uh, and he, uh, you know, when they went into the third season of Star Trek, he came on board at the beginning of the second season, and his character was really hot. They were getting a lot of fan mail for him and having a good time with Chekhov. And so Gene had him over to the house when they were going to do the third season, and he said, we're really going to emphasize Chekhov more in his third year. And he showed him the script for Spectre of the Gun, which was the first episode they filmed. Great episode. That's another great third season episode, I think. And um, uh, and Chekhov has a love scene in it, a death scene, but of course he comes back from death and everything else because it's an illusion. Or wait, wait, wait. Spoilers, and, Mark. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> pardon me? Spoilers. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, well, who hasn't seen it ten <laughs> times already? <laughs> but but uh, and then then he wasn't suddenly getting the uh, the roles that he wanted. Well, that's because Gene stepped down. Gene was so angry about getting the ten p.m. Friday slot that he uh, stepped away and was still executive producer, but didn't have the hands-on uh, approach that he'd had during the first two years. And uh, Walter was actually very happy again like Mike Farrell, to find out that that Gene was, wasn't lying to him, that he was going to do more with the character, and that Gene was that upset and actually stepped away uh, over these issues. 
so it made Walter feel a little bit better because, you know, that's important. Relationships are so important in this industry. And the worst thing an actor can feel is that he's been lied to. Right. He doesn't mind that the network has cut his throat. He just wants to know that the people he has a relationship with, that he's, he's working with and loyal to, that they don't cut his throat. So it's always been good for them to hear uh, that kind of stuff. You want to know another surprise you had asked earlier about revelations I had found out going through all the show files and the memos and everything, uh, that Leonard Nimoy almost quit Star Trek at the end of the first season. Uh, we all know about Michelle almost quitting, but uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy was only getting paid uh, $1,250 an episode. And Shatner was getting paid 5000 an episode, plus he had 5% ownership in the series. Leonard didn't have that. And, uh, and yet he's getting more fan mail than Shatner was by the end of the first year. So his agent uh, told him not to report to work. And uh, there were some fiery memos going back and forth. If you don't report to work, uh, you'll be fired. We'll take action against you, against SAG. You'll never work in this business again. And he held firm. And he wrote a letter to Gene Roddenberry, which I have in that book uh, of uh, season two, uh, which is a very kind letter. But he says, I just can't come in and do this because my character has become so popular and I've helped create that character and I'm not being compensated fairly for this. And, um, and that's not being greedy, wanting to get more than a $1,200 an episode. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it wasn't that much money even back then. And, um, and so they were going to replace him, uh, with, uh, Lawrence, uh, Montaigne and, uh, uh, they signed up Lawrence Montaigne to be the new Vulcan on the Enterprise. Uh, and he had a clause in his contract that if they worked things out with Nimoy at the last minute and Nimoy came back, then Lawrence would be given a, a guest role, a guest starring role. And he got that in a, a muck time. But, um, but it really was right down to the wire. There's a great memo in there from Gene Roddenberry to Gene Kuhn, dated April 1st, 1967. And Gene Kuhn had just come back from a two-week vacation, and they were getting the scripts ready for the second season. And Gene writes him and says, uh, I, I have troubling news for you. This is no April Fool's joke. But it looks like we'll be continuing without Nimoy. Uh, so it, it was right down to the line. That's a big development. And uh, I'd never seen anything on that anywhere until I went through the show files. Well, and Nimoy also was a holdout for the animated series when he found out that most of the cast were not coming back. And you detail That's that right. in, uh, I believe it's the second book, where you're talking about the development of the animated pictures over at, at Filmation, where you know, Nimoy is basically saying, you know, these are the characters, the actors that play the characters should continue playing the characters. Yeah. Yeah, Leonard had great ethics, you know. He, he was a good guy, yeah. and uh, he, he he signed on board to do the animated series, as did Shatner, as did uh, uh, James Doohan, Michelle Nichols, uh, Majel signed on, of course. Uh, and uh, But they weren't going to bring back uh, Nichelle or George or Walter. Uh, they were going to have uh, other actors do those voices because they could get them cheaper. And the minute Nimoy found that out, as you said, Jason, he said, well, then I'm out. You know, you, you can't have somebody else doing that character's voice. Right. Uh, they helped create that character. You can't do that to them. I'm out. 
And so they, they hired Michelle and they hired uh, George uh, and they, they wrote Walter out, uh, which I always thought was crazy because it was on Saturday mornings and that's, that's the youngest character on the show who had great teen support. Uh, but they, they left him out. But they did offer him a script assignment. And after he did The Infinite Vulcan, Roddenberry offered him a second script assignment. But Walter turned it down because, as he told me, uh, it was just too much work. Gene yeah. always made the writers do lots of rewrites. <laughs> they said, I'm not going to do that much work for 1200 bucks, which is what they were paying for the animated scripts. Right. And you list all of the different drafts and the dates and who did them. And looking at some of these, it... I, I could understand just as a, as a writer myself, the amount of frustration that probably would have set in every single, okay, now we have to do this change and now we have to do another one. And now you want another revision and now you want another one. And yeah. I could, I could see it at some point where a lot of, a lot of writers would just throw their hands up and say, this is not worth what I'm going through to, to get there. It happened many, many times, which is why a lot of writers like, uh, uh, Adrian Spies, who wrote Miri in the first season of the original series, uh, didn't do any more scripts because uh, there was too many rewrites. Yeah. Uh, and and there's memos in there for that episode. Each episode is a chapter. And there's memos from Roddenberry writing to Adrian Spies' agents saying, we just need him to do one more rewrite. And, and I, we would think he would want to do this because his script didn't really catch the characters very well and blah 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 mm. and Gene was trying to get another rewrite out of them but he refused to do it <clears throat> so Gene Kuhn ended up rewriting that script uh, Gene Roddenberry rewrote the first uh, oh, dozen uh, himself and more than 50% of the dialogue you hear in very early episodes was from Gene Roddenberry not from the writer who got the credit uh, so, and then Jane Goon started rewriting the scripts, and then Dorothy Fontana would start rewriting the scripts when each got burned out, because how many scripts can you rewrite before you just say, I can't do another one? Sure. So they kept doing it, and then Fred Freiberger was, writing, Freiberger was rewriting the scripts for the uh, third season, and Arthur Singer. Um, and the characters are always in character, so again, it shows that Fred and Arthur did a good job. Uh, the, the stories are good, the characters are right on the mark, it's just that the episodes weren't as good in the third season because of the budget. But yeah, they all had to rewrite these things severely. A freelance writer, uh, after the pitch, if you get assigned the, given this assignment, and I know this from personal experience as well, but this is the Writers Guild's rules, is that you do a treatment, and they can ask for a rewrite of that treatment if you miss the mark. And then after that, they either have to cut the assignment off or let you go to script. And when you go to script, you do a first draft, they give you notes, you do a second draft, and you're done. But for each of those episodes, both for the original series, for the animated series, you see that there were like a dozen drafts. Right. And the original writer would usually stay on for an extra draft or two, because Gene would beg them. <laughs> <laughs> he was going to rewrite the script, he just wanted them to get it as close as they could get it, and then he would come in and do a dialogue rewrite, and work it from there, but he wanted the structure to be right. Yeah. And that's what he would push them to do, and they ended up having to do a lot of drafts. Some of them didn't mind because they saw the results and they were happy, and they were happy to come back and get another assignment. But a lot of these writers, they would do one script and say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore, because they were busy. They were writing for other shows. They didn't have to do, come back and do that much work for Star Trek. 
so I want to circle back real quick to uh, to Lost in Space for a minute because something sure. something you said uh, kind of kind of ticked off a little a little check mark in, uh, in in my head about the pilot for that show, and you talk about how the show evolved into the the kid and the robot and the Doctor Comedy Hour. The the pilot of that show, the black and white pilot, the original was much darker and much much more of a drama than yeah. the show evolved into. It, is, is that a normal thing, just in your experience as a, as a screenwriter, as somebody who's worked in the television business, do you have that kind of thing happen a lot where the network meddles so much to the point where the show at the end of its run doesn't really resemble what it looked like at the beginning of its run or were, are these anomalies? No, th this is often how it was back then. It's not how it is today because most of the really good quality dramas are coming out of Netflix and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, the new, new loss of space, um, you know, when Kevin Burns and John Jasney took that into Netflix, <clears throat> and by the way, CBS wanted it, and I think NBC wanted it. They had like three offers to do the uh, reboot. And they went with Netflix, because Netflix says, how much money do you need? How many episodes do you want to make? And it was Kevin and John who said, well, we think 10. 10 episodes for the first season, and we're going to have the entire first season arc planned out, and, uh, and so forth. And we need uh, $6 million an episode. And Netflix said okay and gave them 60 million bucks to do the series with no interference. They want to be in the loop, you know, they, on, on casting and things like that, but right. they pretty much empower the showrunner to do what they want to do, and that's how most series are today. Back then, it was a constant fight between the showrunner and the networks. And the network would put the show on the air, and uh, they'd get some letters, and they would presume that this represents everybody watching when it may only represent 1%. And they would start asking for changes. And that's what happened with Lots of Space. It wasn't just the pilot that was dark. It was the first several episodes, almost the first half of the first season. And uh, if you remember those episodes, uh, Dr. Smith was very cold-blooded and, uh, and not a buffoon at all. And, uh, and he programmed the robot to kill all the Robinsons. He didn't want the Major West killed because he needed Major West to take him back to Earth. Uh, but he wanted all the Robinsons killed because they were the ones, uh, John Robertson was the one that said, no, we have to continue with the mission. And uh, so, okay, kill them. And he even told the robot, kill the kids, but make it look like an accident. Make it look, I'm a doctor, I'll say it was something with the environment, which will give Major West all the more reason to fly me back to Earth because there's no point staying here if the environment's going to kill us. Right. And uh, and this is what the network really had problems with, because Lost of Space was on during the family hour, uh, 7.30 to 8.30. And so they contacted Irwin, and they said, you know, we've been letting you get away with some things, but you're putting children in peril, and that's not allowed during the family hour. And so you have to kill off Smith and dismantle the robot. And Irwin didn't want to do that because he saw Smith as his long John Silver. And uh, and he thought, I needed that character for internal conflict yeah. within the humans. So it's not just always humans against aliens. 
and, uh, and and he was watching the dailies, and he was seeing that Jonathan Harris was starting to sneak comedy into it, very subtle. He was doing the lines that were written, but his delivery was putting a little bit of a comic edge on it. And he went into Jonathan's uh, trailer uh, and walked over to him and stuck his finger in Jonathan's face, which Irwin always liked to do when he was confronting somebody. And he walked in there and put his finger right up to Jonathan's nose, and he said, You, I know what you're doing. Do more. <laughs> and he walked out. <laughs> Because he didn't want to lose that character. Right. And so they just, so then you see in the second half of the first season, the black and white episodes, it starts getting, Smith starts getting a little more cowardly and a little more comical. And the network was thrilled. They weren't getting the protest letters anymore from parents. And so when the second season kicked off and it switched to color, uh, the show had gone through a complete revamp. Uh, Eastland in the chat was talking about how, how Dr. Smith was scary at first, but uh, love the fact that you have this this vaudeville actor uh, playing Dr. Smith and, and what he brings to the role with that. Uh, and, and you know, we, we probably could go another hour, hour and a half, two hours, because we haven't even really gotten into phase two yet. So, Mark, let me ask you, would you be willing to come back and we do another one of these here soon? Sure. Okay. Hey. It's really tough for me to talk about things I love. <laughs> I know, I know. I have to, I have to deal with that issue all the time. It's like, oh, twist my arm, why don't you? So yeah. let me. Hey, can, can I share? If you have just a few more yeah, minutes, I'd love to share another story because it kind of goes back to a question you asked earlier about things that surprised me when I was doing my research. Sure. And and one of the things was how so many things that came up in Star Trek that had become iconic and had become part of the format, like the Vulcan nerve pinch and the Vulcan mind meld and so forth, came about out of necessity because of censorship. And, uh, and uh, the one, one story I love to share is uh, an early episode called Dagger to the Mind, which was maybe about the 10th, 11th episode they filmed in the first season. And uh, uh, Simon, Dr. Simon Van Gelder has escaped from a penal colony but he can't tell them why. He can't tell them what was happening to him down there because his mind has been repressed from the neural neutralizer, as they will find out. Uh, and, uh, and every time he tries to tell them, he goes through spasms of pain and he can't get the words out. Well, in the, in the script, they had uh, Kirk goes down to the planet to investigate, and that's the way it happens in the episode as well. But in the script, uh, Dr. McCoy and Mr. Spock hypnotize Simon Van Gelder, so that they can unlock the repressed memories and find out what he what he experienced. And they did it conventional ways, with a watch in front of his face. <laughs> you know? And the memo from NBC said, you cannot hypnotize anybody on the National Broadcasting Company's <laughs> network, because they were afraid that audience members might get hypnotized. Oh, sure. And, and Roddenberry had to fight over this, and he said, this is a very important part of this story. We can't take that out. They said, you can't do it. And so Roddenberry came up with the idea of the Vulcan, Vulcan mind melt because that is something NBC was allowed them to do, but they wouldn't allow them to hypnotize them by other means. Yeah. Of course, years later, you see people getting hypnotized on television all the time. <laughs> uh, it was just during that period uh, in the 60s and even before then in the 50s, television was very closed-minded to a lot of this kind of stuff. 
and they would listen to their lawyers, and their lawyers said, you know, somebody out there, some goofball in the audience, television viewing audience is going to think they got hypnotized, and they're going to sue us. And so they would take all that kind of stuff out. Uh, but Roddenberry found a way around it. And so that, that is a lot of the fun for me in doing this research and digging and digging and finding these memos, is to find out why the Vulcan Mind Meld came about and other things of that type. Uh, so that's the fun stuff in the book, but I would be happy to share that stuff to your audience anytime. Okay, and and there are actually six books right now. We'll throw that uh, that image up for uh, our our viewers to see. You've got uh, six volumes so far. These are the voyages. Is the is the overall title? Uh, the last three books. Uh, I just posted my review of uh, the seventies uh, era books on uh, sci fi for me com. And Mark, let me ask you because your your research so far we've gone up to uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture. Are there is there anything else coming? Are we going to get Next Generation? Are we going to get Star Trek Two and the rest yeah. of the films? I would like to, uh, and I've got all the materials uh, because when I was in there uh, making photocopies of all the uh, memos and drafts and so forth, uh, I continued with the other movies and uh, into Next Generation as well. Uh, so it all comes down to how sales are. You know, if the books do well, the first three have done great. Uh, the, the, the second series of three books is doing okay, uh, but they have to reach a certain level for the publisher to want to continue. And uh, so we'll find out as time goes along, but uh, if, if the sales are there, if the support is there from from the fans, then, yeah, and, and if I don't drop dead, I, I will keep writing these because uh, I enjoy it, and I, love, and I love finding out for myself. You know, I, I write these books because they're the books I want to read, Right. and nobody else was writing them. And, uh, and you know, like even, even the book you, you mentioned, uh, uh, Herb Solo, uh, and he wrote his book with Bob Justman. Well, you know, I worked with Bob Justman and interviewed him, and he gave me tons of memos and so forth as well. And, um, you know, he was not happy with the way that book turned out. Uh, he said Herb kind of steered it in mm. a direction that uh, that he wasn't happy about because it became very Gene Roddenberry. Uh, and, uh, and Bob liked Gene Roddenberry. He liked working with Gene Roddenberry. And uh, he knew Gene had his faults. Uh, they didn't always agree, but uh, but he respected him and yeah. saw him as, as as a genius, as brilliant, who created this wonderful thing and was happy to be part of it. And he didn't like seeing Herb taking credit for things that he shouldn't have been taking credit for, and he didn't like seeing him disrespect Gene and put Gene down to the degree that he was. Some of it's true, some of it is is not, some of it is... is uh, um, distorted a bit and and that's what bob told me so uh so again when i would write these books i said look i i want to i want to know the real story and i want to know what every episode i want to know why they did this episode and why this episode doesn't work as well as the others why why is alternate factor such a mess what happened <laughs> and uh and i couldn't find that information anywhere and so the way i could write this book for me was to go dive deep into the uh, show files right. knowing that there were other people like me out there who would probably want to read it and you've done this now for star trek uh, there's six volumes here there's three volumes uh, looking at lost in space 
You have uh, one on I Spy. You have one on uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Are there any other shows in the pipeline that you're planning to do this with? Well, there are shows I would like to do. Um, but, you know, there's always a couple factors that you have to consider. One is, do, do they have the fan support to justify it? Because it, it takes about a year for me to do one of these books. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm working 12 hours a day, six days a week doing this stuff. Uh, and loving every minute of it. But it's, you know, I'm not out writing TV scripts and doing things to pay my bills, so i got to make sure the books do well. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, can I get access to the show files? I mentioned Wild Wild West before. I would love to do a book on the Wild West because it was such a uh, unique series. There's nothing out there like it. Right. Part spy, part western, part sci-fi. And it went through a very uh, difficult first season trying to find itself. It had seven different producers in its first season. And oh again, together was Fred Freiberger, or Freiberger, and, uh, and, and Gene Kuhn, who came in after they fired Fred. Uh, Gene Kuhn got hired. And both of the, this was before either of them did Star Trek. Uh, and, and so I, that, would, that would be a show I would enjoy doing, but so far I haven't been able to get access to the show files. So that's an important thing. I was able to get access to iSpy. I was able to get access to Star Trek, uh, to the Irwin Allen shows. Uh, and and uh, the, the owners of Ir the Irwin Allen properties want me to do a book on Time Tunnel and, and a book on Land of the Giants. But so far, the, uh, the sales to Voyage books uh, don't uh, justify it. They're doing okay. You know, they, they, they're making money. They're out of the red, but uh, they're not doing what they need to do for me to uh, get into my diving suit and uh, and dive into something for a year. All right. Well, the so that, that that's that's what will determine how many more of these I do. But I would like to do Next Generation for sure. Right. The website uh, for finding these books, JacobsBrownMediaGroup.com. We'll put a link in our show notes for that. You can see all of Mark's books as well as the other, uh, the other titles that they have there available. Mark's, uh, Mark's website, markcushman.com. You can find out more about him and his work. And Mark, let's plan to have you back here very soon. We'll continue this, and we'll get into more on the Phase 2 and the animated stuff, because, like I said, this, this kind of thing, we could probably have conversations about this for a good six or seven hours and, and, and still oh, yeah. not cover everything, so... Uh, it's it's a deep subject, and that's why you know it's funny when I did the uh, the first series of three books. It was supposed to be one book, but uh, I was just coming out with so much gold, uh, you know, from my my treasure hunting that uh, that I I started writing it and I started showing the publisher what I was writing, and the decision was quickly made that it's going to have to be a book for each season. And when I did the second set. Uh, same thing. They were hoping I could do it in one book. And then we went to two, and then we finally broke it into three because the page count was just going to be too big. And their editors would go through it and try to find things to trim, and they said, well, actually, this is relevant. Yeah. The, it's a, the, the fans will like knowing this. And so it was just hard to cut them down. Uh, and it's not just a, a way of conveying information. It's What I try to do is use my screenwriting background to as I said, make it a biography. Like if you're watching a movie about somebody, a right. movie about the life of Ray Charles or whatever, you, you want to feel the emotion that goes into it. 
And there's a lot of emotion that goes into trying to make a TV series and trying to make a movie. You see the birth, you see the life, you see the death. And so it, it, it takes you through that, that entire journey. And it just takes a lot of pages to do that. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you coming. It takes us a lot of time to talk about it. It does. So I'll be happy to come back whenever you want. Okay, we will definitely set that up then. Mark Cushman, thank you very much for being here today, sir. Thanks, Jason. Thanks all of you for being here as well. I know we've gone a little bit long, but I think it was definitely worth it, and we will do it again very soon. Uh, we have more Live from the Bunker tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern, and coming up on Friday... We will have, I think, uh, at least that's the plan, Friday at 5 o'clock Eastern, we will have a new TARDIS sauce. Tim and uh, the gang will be talking about the Doctor Who toys that have come out over the years, uh, I think is their planned topic. And then, of course, uh, Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday with the week's headlines. And we are working on a school closings list. Uh, today or tomorrow we should have that out with the latest updates on the convention schedules. So be here for that. If you have not yet subscribed to the channel, we do invite you to do that. Have your notifications turned on and uh, sign up for our newsletter. And you can find us on all of the socials. And we will be back to do this again tomorrow. And remember, in the meantime, there are four lights. Back tomorrow with more. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.